regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Datacast, and today I have the pleasure to be on a call with Azin Askarian, currently an applied research scientist on Georgian's RD team, where she works with companies to help adopt applied research techniques to overcome business challenges. She holds a Master of Science in Computer Science from the University of Toronto, and a Bachelor of Computer Science from the University of Tehran. Before joining Georgian, She was a research assistant at the University of Toronto and part of the Computer Vision Group, which worked on the intersection of machine learning, transfer learning, and computer vision. And due to her interest in healthcare, she also worked on various healthcare projects as a research assistant at the University Health Network. Azin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for hosting me today, James. And yeah, very happy to be here. So uh, by way of introduction, I believe that you are Iranian and you went to a girls only high school in Tehran, which is designed specifically for extraordinary talents. Would you mind going over this early phase of your life? To be honest, it was one of the best periods of my life. It was very motivating and inspiring to study among the most talented students of your city. And, you know, we had a very healthy and organic competition that I think helped me a lot to push myself beyond my limits. Uh, in our school, there was a huge emphasis on main subjects like math, physics, chemistry, which helped me to build a strong foundation. But also there was a very like a big emphasis on extracurricular activities like programming, sports, painting. And I remember when I was 14, I participated in one of our robotic classes and we built a line following robot, which was super cool and made me really passionate about robotics and in general, you know, programming. But as you know, everything comes with, I would say, disadvantages and advantages. One disadvantage that I can remember is like being in a girls only school, you're only interacting with people with the same sex and it's really hard to get to know men. So we really like, you know, it was a bit hard to understand men and the differences between men and women before starting our, my bachelor. And it's basically the same with, I think, everyone else in Iran. Uh, but on the positive side, you're constantly surrounded with a lot of like independent, successful, talented women, uh, which makes you to be one of them really in future. So I don't know if you know about, for example, Maya Mirzakhani. She was professor at Stanford University and the only woman who has ever won a field medal, which is the most prestigious award in the mathematics. It's like Nobel Prize for Mathematician. And she was an alumni of our high school. And I remember ever since I started, you know, studying in our high school, everyone were basically talking about her, how brilliant she was, how smart she was, how hardworking she was. So it's like, I think growing up, you were always hearing these stories of like successful women who have pushed the limits, who were very hardworking, who were very smart. And, you know, you kind of like start adopting those as your role models And that basically shifts your mindset. Like you're like, oh, you know, these women have been in my shoes before. They have followed their dreams. They were really, you know, they could achieve their dreams with hard working. And so I can do it probably too. So it's kind of like shifts your mind. And I think that's the most like unique and uh, powerful thing that I have learned from being in our, you know, in that high school and in that environment specifically. Yeah, I see. Thanks for sharing your story and definitely agree with the importance of having role models that inspiring you to pursue that route uh, along the way. After that, you graduated first from the class for your bachelor degree in computer science from the University of Tehran. And I think my understanding that during college, you also participate in a variety of you know teaching activities and programming contests. So how would you describe your overall undergrad experience? I would generally describe it 
tough, challenging, but very rewarding at the same time. Since childhood, I was really interested in mathematics. And I remember, you know, when I was eight or nine, I started going to extra like math classes to learn about math. And I was really good at it. So I was generally really interested in math since childhood. And throughout the middle school and high school, as I told you, I was participating in like robotic classes, which made me also really passionate about programming. So after my high school and like the university entrance exam, I had to choose a program and uh, the two options that I had pretty much were computer science and computer programming. In Iran, there is a lot of like tendency for students to go to to engineering programs because uh, engineering programs are generally more prestigious and they're way more popular compared to the programs in art and science like computer science. I had to choose and I kind of like went opposite of the flow. I decided to study computer science because Computer science in Iran is part of the math department and it's more theoretical. Um, so I went to the, you know, and started like a studying computer science, but because it was a bit more theoretical, especially compared to computer science programs in Canada, it's like way more theoretical. I wanted to also get that experience of coding and programming. And in order to achieve that, I was basically participating in like extra classes. We had a small team and we had like a small classes for ICPC, ACM, ICPC contest. We were practicing together. So through those activities, you know, I was kind of like trying to improve my programming while like I'm studying the theory behind it. And that was overall a very good experience. Some of our professors were very good. They were very also helpful in motivating the students and helping them to shape their to find their passion and what they're interested in. I think the combination of the school environment, the professors, the extra, you know, the activities and like programming classes in overall, that combination helped me a lot to find what I'm interested in and also work on it. Like, you know, I'm just learning the theory and kind of like finding the different opportunities to practice the coding part as well. Yeah, I see. So you mentioned a little bit about like participating on this programming contest. I'm just curious, can you elaborate more on that? Why are you becoming interested in participating in that? And I believe you want to compete like internationally. So can you just share maybe some story? Uh, sure. So ACM ICPC competitions are basically programming competitions. So the format of the competitions, like you're given a limited time and limited memory for each, basically to solve a series of questions. And the questions are a combination of math and programming questions. So it's kind of like, I think there were there are six or seven questions. And for each question, you have to find the most basically efficient algorithm to solve that question. Then when you solve the question, you code it, you submit your code, and you can basically get an answer to see if you, your code works or not. But since for most of the question, there is memory limit and time limit, you have to be really careful about that. It's just not about solving the problem. It's solving the problem with certain memory in certain time. And I think that's what makes it very difficult. So in order to practice for the contest, we had classes, we had a very like amazing teacher. And basically we were participating in different types of online programming competitions like Top Coder, online competitions you participate there are a bunch of questions with different difficulties you try to solve the questions and what i think what i found to be the most effective part is like after the competition is over you can see other people's solutions and learn from them you can also challenge other people's solutions like people can come and challenge you and if they're right then they would gain point that's how top quarter for example works through the participation in those competitions, we were basically practicing and preparing ourselves for ACPC. I think there were like few teams from University of Tehran. I had like two very strong teammates. We participated in the West Asia Regional, like like that was held in Sharif University. We gained the second basically rank in the whole contest, which made us eligible to participate in the international contest. But unfortunately, due to some visa issues with our visa process and other things, we couldn't participate finally in the international contest. But, you know, generally going through that process, working with people, trying to solve different questions on Top Coder platform, that was, I would say, very, very helpful in like 
forming a programming mindset for you and like kind of helping you to understand how you can break a complicated problem into smaller pieces and solve it step by step. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for sharing those concrete details. After your undergrad in 2015, you moved to Canada and started your computer science master degree at the University of Toronto under the supervision of Babak Tati and David Flitt. How was your overall academic experience in Toronto? I think it was generally very, very positive. Um, moving from Iran to Canada was definitely a huge change for me. You know, if you compare Iran and Canada, I think polar opposite in many aspects, like the culture, the education system, the economy, everything works differently in these countries. So when I moved to Canada, at the beginning, it was a little bit of shock for me. It's like you're in this new environment. You don't know how you have to study, how you have to prepare your for your final exams, how you have to do the assignments. And you're just like constantly looking for feedback to understand how you're doing and how you have to change your strategy to do well in this new environment. So I would say the first few months was definitely a bit difficult in, in terms of, you know, you're just trying to adapt to this new environment and understand how it works and how you can like be successful in it. But I think for me, it went very smooth because of just, you know, the support that I was receiving from my advisor, the community of Iranian students and like other students that uh, we had at the University of Toronto and so on and so forth. So I think in general, it went pretty smooth. And so to be honest, I remember like in the first few weeks, for example, I was calling my advisor Dr. Tati constantly. And that's one of the differences. Like in Iran, you should call your professors very formally. So I was calling him Dr. Tati, Dr. Tati, you know. And at some point he was like, Azin, you don't need to call me Dr. Tati. You can just call me Babak. I was like, you know, you kind of like, I was just kind of learning in the first few months. But in terms of like, after the first few months, I felt like I got used to it and I could adapt very well. And after that, it was just, you know, pure learning. And in terms of like, I was learning from my advisors. They're both pretty knowledgeable, very supportive, super nice. So it was like, really, I'm really grateful for the things that I've learned from them. Also, I think U of T is one of the best schools in the world. It has amazing resources for research. It provides students with access to facilities like gym, best libraries, a lot of like free classes for English, for writing, for health and wellness. Yeah, it was, I think, being part of that environment and vibe was definitely something very, very positive in my life. Like, I learned a ton from being in the environment and working with those people. Like, the researchers you see around yourself uh, are, you know, the best in the field. And there are like lots of things going on, like amazing talks, amazing events every day. So it's like really hard to get the most out of it. But yeah, it was generally super positive. Yeah, thanks for sharing your experience. If I'm not wrong, I believe you also was, uh, we will talk a little bit about some of your research for the rest of the interview, but I also believe that you were serving as a teaching assistant for a variety of competence and classes throughout your master degree, ranging from programming to machine learning to neural networks and etc. And just maybe uh, share some a bit about that experience, how was being a TA in these different classes like for you and what do you enjoy and, and things like that? Yeah. Yes, for sure. So I think being a TA is definitely one of the best ways to deepen your knowledge in an area. And I really can't highlight that enough, I guess. I found it very uh, an amazing way to comprehend your knowledge and deepen it. Because like usually when uh, you try to explain something to someone, that's actually when you think about all the possible questions that you have to know and you have to answer. So it's very different when you're reading something by yourself. Throughout my master's, I think I took a few courses in machine learning. And after that, I really wanted to get that experience. I really wanted to you know, be able to deepen my knowledge and transfer my knowledge to other undergraduate students. So I, that's why I really wanted to take TH, do TH for one of those courses. And I would say it definitely helped a lot. In addition to that, another thing that you gain is kind of like this different perspective, uh, because 
to basically going through students' assignments and their thought process and how people try to solve one problem. That also gives you a very interesting perspective, sometimes even for your research, sometimes even for your own you know, thought process. So I really like that experience in general. Yeah, fabulous. Let's just discuss a little bit about some of the you know, research work you've done during your master. One of the first reported work on this one is called Barriers to Adoption of Information Technology in Healthcare back in 2017. The report takes a system thinking perspective to identify barriers to the application of IT in healthcare and also allow a couple of solutions to, to tackle some of those barriers. Yeah, could you mind sharing those barriers as a solution provided in this report? We basically wrote this report as part of our project for this course that we were taking system thinking for global problems at UFT. I think it was my second semester I took this course. It was a very interesting course. It actually teaches you how different systems work, how basically you can define a system. Uh, so it basically tells you that systems can be characterized in terms of their boundaries, their elements, and how elements within a system interact with each other and with things out of that system. So as part of our course project, me and my friend, Christina, we were thinking like, what should we choose for our project? And we were both working on uh, two different problems in healthcare at the time. I was working on remote patient monitoring and my friend, Christina, was working on electronic medical records or EMRs. So we thought, you know, why not just trying to find use this technique and methodology of system thinking to find barriers in healthcare, specifically for these two use cases. And so basically that's what we did in the report. We read a lot of different resources from World Health Organizations to you know, research papers in computer science. And we tried to put everything together and understand the healthcare as a system, different stakeholders in it, different elements in it, and what are actually the barriers and how the, the barriers are kind of like interact with each other. I can maybe cover a little, like I can briefly touch some of the barriers in remote patient monitoring or PMRs. One of the most important ones are economic barriers. These devices usually cost a lot. And on the other side, the business models of healthcare companies that provide these devices are that, that those are not scalable enough which kind of like concerns investors. So as an investor, you prefer sometimes you're hesitant to invest in healthcare companies because of those types of issues. Another important one is privacy and security because when it comes to healthcare, you're basically working with a lot of sensitive information that can be used to identify patients. And you you can extract a lot of like sensitive information just from the data that you're working with. So it's really important, but using a system a thinking perspective and lens, if you increase the security and privacy standards from the other side, you're basically making the systems more complicated and adding these layers of security, which makes it harder for patients to adapt to, you know, use that system because now the patient have to, you know, pass three different layers of security, for example, or when you try to improve the security and privacy, you're actually adding cost to your system too. So it's kind of like we analyze this whole scenario as a system and how these different elements are interacting with each other and basically how you can increase or decrease some of them to get a better outcome at the end. Yeah, thanks for sharing those insights. I guess this also like sparked one of your initial interest in the healthcare domain industry as in, as in general. And some of your work later on was really about using ML to tackle some of these barriers, you know, and specifically. So your master thesis at uh, Toronto, this one is called Subspace Selection to Suppress Confounding Source Domain Information in AAM Transfer Learning. So this thesis explores transfer learning in the context of facial analysis. Can you just go over the motivation and some of the empirical work being done here? This research project happened as part of, you know, another bigger project that I was working on. So when I started my master's, I started working on this big project that was about developing a pain detection systems for older adults with dementia to detect their pain based on their facial expression. And the reason we wanted to develop such system is that people with severe dementia, they usually cannot communicate their pain verbally. So most of the time their pain is missed 
when they're in long-term care facilities or nursing homes. And that is what leads to high mortality rate because when people, you know, pain is usually the sign of a problem or a disease or something, you know, it shows that something is not going right. And when people's pain is missed, it's basically a very important indicator of bigger problem is missed. So that's the reason we started working on this project. Halfway through the project, you know, we had some data collected from older adults and we were thinking about building and developing our own AI models to detect and uh, basically their facial expressions. But halfway through the project, we realized that our data is very limited. And so we started looking for a public data set uh, because as you know, most of these algorithms, they require tons and tons of data. And we realized that, oh, there is not much data from older adults, especially with dementia. Most of the data that exists out is publicly available is from actresses and actors. Normal face, and those are healthy individuals. And so our target population was very, very different from what we basically could find on the web. Healthy individuals, usually, you know, they have like very clear eyebrows. They don't have any wrinkles. They usually have like dark hair. But, you know, people who we were working with, they usually do not have eyebrows or the eyebrows are like really thin. They have a lot of wrinkles. They have double chin. Their hair was white. So there was a huge difference between the data that we had and we wanted to like perform those models on and the data that existed, you know, public and was publicly available. When we trained our model on the publicly available data set, the models performed very poorly on those patients, right? They were just not performing well. And at some point we're like, oh, what is the reason that's happening? So, and we kind of started thinking about that. And we realized that naturally and intuitively, there's this huge difference between the appearance of healthy individuals and older adults with dementia who we wanted to actually deploy these models on and use these models for. And basically, we, the next question was that how we can remove these gaps and train our algorithms on a combination of these data so that you know, our algorithms learn the general features from the public data set and the specific features of older adults from this tiny and limited data that we have. And that's basically why we thought about you know, this method and uh, algorithms and why we kind of like start working on it. So the idea with, behind this algorithm or you know, the paper is that if you have a source data, which in our case was this public data set from healthy actors that was co collected through web, and you have a target data set, which was, you know, in our case, again, older adults with dementia, with wrinkles and like double chins and so on and so forth. You can still benefit from training your models on both data set if you uh, use an algorithm that smartly pick the features, you know, as, as smartly learns from these two data sets. So you wanna, you wanted to develop an algorithm that learned the general or generic set of features from the healthy individual, but then specializes on the older adult spaces. And that's basically uh, the idea behind what we propose in that paper. We did it through a combination of dimensionality reduction method and active appearance models, which are kind of like very generative models for capturing the structure of a face through a mesh. I see. The proposed method is called subspace transfer learning, right? Maybe can you dig a bit into some of the details? Like how is it uh, different from maybe standard transfer learning? We were probably going to touch about some of these broader classes of transfer learning later on, but uh, I guess like what are some of the biggest challenges? Like what were some of the ideas that spread in your mind during the design of these algorithms? Uh, when we started thinking about this problem, what we found and what was the state of the art was another method called instance-based transfer learning method. So instance-based transfer learning method basically reweight and source sample instances in an attempt to address the gap between source and target. If I wanted to translate it to, you know, my example, it would be like, you know, I look at the images of healthy uh, actor and actresses and I give them a weight based on how similar they are to the population that I'm considering. Like 
you know, if they have wrinkles, I will give them a higher weight, for example, because they're more similar to my target population. The weighting methodology is basically the core part of the algorithm. So they basically propose different heuristic methods or different smart ways of estimating those weights. And basically after you have the weights, you combine your source samples and target samples and train your model directly on them. So that was the state of the art. There was this method from University of Vienna, which was the state of the art, and we started with it. But after some point, we realized that when you have a very limited amount of target data, these weights can become so noisy. And when the weights are so noisy, the performance of these transfer instance-based transfer learning methods drops significantly, which was the case. You know, in our case, we had very limited amount of data from senior adults with you know dementia and when we try those instance weighted method the performance drops significantly and that's basically why we thought like how can we reduce the noise that's where we got this you know we started thinking about this idea of like instead of reweighting the samples and basically combine the data in order to share the knowledge and capture all the information from these sources of data can we capture the knowledge or basically summarize the knowledge in using a dimensionality reduction method and then share the summarized knowledge between these? And that's why we moved to like, we basically focused on principal directions instead of the actual data. What our method does is like, you basically apply principal component analysis on your data. Through that, you basically summarize your data, you basically find the principal components in your data or like the direction that captures the most information in your data. You just basically share or, you know, use the top end direction or principal component or summarization of your data and augment it to your target model. By doing this, you avoid the noise and you don't need to, you know, go through that noisy process. So you still find the most relevant part of the source domain and you basically augment it with the target domain. But instead of doing it on a sample level basis, you do it based on principal directions that are derived from your data, which is hopefully less, less noisy compared to, you know, those samples. There's a curiosity to perform that algorithms on principal components. Is it less computationally expensive than doing it on a single data point? I think it can be definitely less computationally expensive. Uh, depending on what algorithm you use to estimate the weights, if you go through, you know, if you wanted to do instance-based transfer learning method, there are tons of different methods that you can use to estimate the weights. But I think the main advantages of the method that we propose is basically its capability to handle noise. And in scenarios when you have very limited amount of target data, I think that's where it actually, it can be very powerful, you know. So you mentioned that this is part of a bigger project you were working on at the University of Toronto, and maybe we can touch a little bit on, in particular, like you spent time as a research assistant at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. This bigger project addressed algorithmic biases in facial detection technology for adults with dementia. So besides the core work of your MS thesis, what are some of the other relevant research direction that you know you and the rest of the team was exploring? I think when I joined the project, it was already two years after it was started. This project, pain detection in older adults with dementia, is part of the AgeWell grants. And like it's granted by AgeWell and supported by different institutes like NSERC and AgeWell, I guess. There were different students working on it along with me. And we worked on multiple different aspects of the project. Another interesting thing that we realized and later on we published two papers on it was uh, basically about the bias in the algorithms. So when we started working, you know, when we started developing these facial expression recognition algorithms, the first problem that we faced, as I told you, was lack of data for seniors with that were not healthy. Like basically for unhealthy seniors, we couldn't find any public data. And after that, we kind of like found a, a few workarounds and like different solutions to solve that piece. But then the next problem that we faced was that a lot of algorithms, regardless of the data that you used to train them, they still perform much worse on unhealthy individuals compared to healthy individuals. In one of our papers, I think it's 
we submitted that paper to CVPR workshop and it actually was a spotlight, became a spotlight. And I think my professor, Bobak, also talked about it in the workshop. So in that paper, we have shared some of our results that basically show how the state-of-the-art deep learning methods, regardless of which data set they are trained on, a lot of them, they perform significantly worse on unhealthy individuals compared to healthy individuals, right? And I think this is very important finding because most of the time when people publish their papers in conferences and so on and so forth, they evaluate their models on these benchmarks, which are collected from very specific population. So all of these benchmarks are usually from in controlled environment, from healthy individuals with certain age group. But, you know, when you wanted to deploy these AI models or algorithms later on in production, you realize that they don't perform as well. And when they're tested on a different population group or in a different environment, that's not a controlled setting, out of a controlled setting, they just perform very, very bad. And you're like surprised why that's happening, right? So in this paper, we wanted to highlight that and basically encourage individuals and like other researchers in the field that they should include different data set and population groups in their research and try to address this sort of algorithmic bias in their algorithms and develop models or algorithms that are resistant and, you know, are generalizable as, as much as possible. Otherwise, whatever they propose is going to sit and, you know, within the boundaries of academia and will never make it through industry. I think I have personally seen that to be case with many research papers. The algorithms work very well on a very specific data set, but when you try it on other data set, it just like fails badly or the performance drops significantly. And yeah, so I think the purpose and the idea behind this paper was to basically encourage everyone by showing an example a real example, basically, and encouraging everyone to work on it and consider different evaluations, set up different data sets when they develop and design an algorithm. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing some of the details and key insights from that work. And, you know, I think the important point is you need more diverse evaluation metrics when you want to actually making it the model be useful in the real world. And talking about the real world, since the summer of 2018, you have been an applied research scientist at Georgian, which is a venture capital firm in Canada that focuses on investing in companies operating in the IT sectors. For the audience who are not familiar with Georgian, can you give a brief overview of the firm? Georgian is an innovator in a venture capital space focused on investing in business-to-business and software-as-a-service companies with large data sets and interesting problems. We have different teams in Georgian. We have the, our investment team. We have the R&D team. We have the operational team, customer success team, so, you know, and other teams. Basically, what we do in Georgian as a whole is that we find strong SaaS B2B companies with a lot of potential or data. And then we invest in those companies. And as part of the post-investment process, we help those companies to scale and grow as much as possible on different aspects, operationally, financially, like on the technology side. And I think one thing that makes Georgian a very unique compared to other venture capitals is this R&D team, which I'm part of it. So as part of the R&D team, we help our portfolio companies post-investment to solve their technical challenges. And we do it basically through different ways. We play an advisory role with some of our portfolio companies when they're forming their teams or, you know, they're like basically building the foundation of their data science technologies. We run hackathons with our portfolio companies when there is a very specific and a small problem to solve. Usually what we do is like we gather the R&D team of Georgian and in collaboration with the team of that portfolio company, we spend the week, all of us focus on this small problem and we try to solve it. And that's been pretty successful throughout the past year. And another type of our engagement is basically our deep engagement when where we you know, focus on a very researchy problem that cannot be solved in a week, but we believe that it can be solved within like six months to a year, the research is already out there, but, you know, we need to still explore and play around and 
deep engagements is basically the third way that we engage with our portfolio companies. The fourth way is like we help our portfolio companies to find the technology trends in industry and basically stay ahead of them. And basically we do this in different ways. We have a monthly paper club that we basically run each month. The purpose of running these monthly sessions is for us and our portfolio companies to stay ahead of technology, educate ourselves constantly, learn what's you know the best thing that exists out there and understand which part of the technology is already mature enough to be used for solving real-world problems and which parts are not mature enough yet. Yeah, these are basically what we do just in the R&D team. It's beyond my expertise to talk about the other teams. Absolutely. And I think it's definitely unusual for a VC firm to have a very strong investment in specific you know, technology R&D group like this. So it's, it's definitely an interesting work environment that you're being a part of. Something that usually people ask me is like, you guys do consultancy or like, how do you guys work with our companies? But what I always try to emphasize when I talk about Georgian is like, when we do deep engagements or when we do hackathons with our portfolio companies, we usually get our hands dirty with the code. We work on the same repo, we develop code with them, we use their data, we literally become employees of our portfolio company and sometimes we even have to sign contracts to get access to data you know create emails within their domain it's not just consultancy one of the ways that we engage with them is definitely advisory role but it's much more beyond that you know we dive really deep into the problem in many many cases i see just curious like in terms of the industry the portfolio that georgian serves is there like some of the bigger proportion that in particular domain or uh, yeah, what, what is the different type of industry that your team is helping to tackle? And that's a great question. I don't think we have any limitations like or any basically problem with investing in almost all industries. Uh, so we have a lot of companies coming from a variety of different industries. Like we have companies coming from healthcare, insurtech, ad tech, a lot of basically from almost all industries. We do have some criteria like social good. We consider things like social good. And so we don't, for example, invest in certain types of companies that we believe can be harmful. Uh, But aside from that, yeah, there is nothing that can limit us from investing in basically all industries. And that's, I think, another interesting thing about working at Georgian because you get to work on the variety of different problems coming from many, many different industries and verticals. That's an absolutely a bargain. Let's discuss some of the technical detail projects that you work on. During your initial internship at Georgian, you work on two separate projects. The first one was a robust and accurate injury prediction model, while the second one is a hybrid instant-based transfer learning method. Can you yeah, discuss some of this work in further detail? Corey was one of our portfolio companies when I joined Georgian in 2018. And Corit is basically a SaaS company that provides insight on safety and risk assessments for organizations. So as part of Corit's safety management platform, they provide injury prediction as a service. And basically what this service does is like, it, you know, we look at the history of employees and we try to predict if they're going to have an injury in the future. And by predicting that, we allow organizations to avoid those types of injuries in future, hopefully, and to, you know, minimize injuries and like accident and basically the harms that can happen to employees. But one problem that Corey was facing at the time was like injuries happen very infrequently, organically, and it's really hard to collect enough data to, you know, create a balanced data set because you can't ask people to jump out of the window to just like, or injure themselves in order for you to get more data. So you have to wait for maybe months and years to collect maybe hundred cases of injury. And you will end up regardless with a very imbalanced data set. So when we started working with Corey, that was one of the biggest challenges that they were facing. They basically had highly imbalanced data set And as a result, uh, the injury prediction models performance were not as expected or good enough. And so we worked together through a collaboration. We basically started a collaboration and worked together on 
what are the different ways that we can improve the performance of this injury prediction model by using transfer learning methods and leveraging the data that was collected previously for other customers of Cority. So, you know, let's say that Cority is working with these 10 different organizations and a lot of them are very similar. And so they can benefit from sharing information because by sharing information between them, you can increase the performance of these injury prediction models. And uh, so basically that's what we worked on. We try to improve the performance of these injury prediction models by employing different transfer learning techniques and aggregating data among different customers. Yeah, I see. That's kind of quite similar to the research project on ODIDOS with dementia in the sense that, you know, with very limited data, right, you need to adopt transfer learning as an approach to learn from the source data, which is more, more populated and then and, and apply that over to domain data with a limited amount of instances. Exactly. Through this engagement and collaboration, we tried different instance-based transfer learning methods and we found one of them to be working quite well. But even on top of that, we proposed a new a strategy to weight samples that was very effective and I think uh, outperformed our state-of-the-art methods at the time. So we basically published some of our results at Machine Learning for Health Workshop at NeurIPS in 2018. You know, we got a lot of interesting feedback and suggestions from people on that work. Yeah, thanks for sharing those projects. And in your earlier answer, so you're talking about Georgian's mission of really focusing on company that doing good for the world, right? Like, and so like, Injury prediction is such a, a niche use case that uh, I didn't expect. So I, I think it's very interesting that, you know, you, know, you are black machine learning for social good in this case. And yeah, this is interesting point that I just want to brought up. Thank you. Around the same time, you also wrote a blog post discussing transfer learning in depth, including the problems, approaches, and application. Can you unpack some of the key insights provided in that blog post? You know, after the project with Cority and my experiences through my master's, I was like, I have been working on different transfer learning problems, some in academia, some in industry. I've been reading a lot about transfer learning problems. And so I wanted to make that easier for people who are just about to start learning about this topic, what is the best way of doing it? And so I thought about, you know, maybe writing a blog post can be a great way to not only share that knowledge with others, but also for myself to practice and review my learning again and, you know, write them down basically as Reed Sutton always says the best way to review your knowledge and come up with new ideas is just writing them down and that was my intention so I thought about you know why not starting a series of blog posts and the first one I'm gonna try to write down and lay the foundation of transfer learning explain it in a little bit of mathy but not so heavy so that people can absorb it you know, people who are just starting to learn about this field can absorb it. I'll talk about different types of problems that you can solve with transfer learning, different types of solutions that you can apply, and basically some real applications of transfer learning. So that's basically what I try to capture in this blog post. And in the coming blog post, uh, the second and third part, I'm planning more to highlight the real applications of transfer learning as well as uh, one or two uh, use cases in more depth to kind of like you know show people what may be the challenges when you're trying to use these methods what are the advantages what are the disadvantages when they should be using them and when they shouldn't be using them because you know like all other methods and algorithms these solutions have their own limitations too. It's really good to be aware of them, especially if you're in in industry and you're trying to solve some problems. If you know that they're not going to work, then you can avoid that path and hopefully save some time. Yes, certainly. So in that blog post, you know, you kind of broke down transfer learning into like two camps. The first one is homogeneous transfer learning and the second is heterogeneous transfer learning. It seems like majority of the current work, at least from the research perspective, is focused on the first one, right? Just talking from a research perspective, like what do you think is some of the potential new direction that an upcoming PhD student can, can tackle if they're interested in advancing transfer learning research? 
That's a great question. Yeah, so basically, as you said, uh, James, I feel most of the classic work in transfer learning lies in the first category of like homogeneous transfer learning, when you are trying to uh, share knowledge between two domains that have the same feature spaces, like, you know, you have uh, images and images, or you have text and text, and that's basically you're just trying to transfer information between two domains with similar set of features. But I think in many cases in real world, we have different modalities of data. We have text data, we have images, we have audio, we have tabular data, we can have you know, different types of signals. And I think that's what lies in the heterogeneous transfer learning case when the feature spaces are different. You're, you have a bunch of images and you have text data and you wanted to transfer information between these two domains. I think this scenario is more realistic and you would face it more often in real world. So it's getting a lot of attention because of the recent advances in deep learning. Gladly, a lot of researchers have focused on this types of like multimodal environment or like heterogeneous transfer learning. These two, I would say they're highly, very similar and related. So I think there's a lot of still potential to develop new robust algorithms that can transfer information between these two. There's a lot of research going on, but I think maybe if I wanted to highlight two parts of it that are not addressed well, is like most of the research that is going on is just on using deep learning models and on a structured data. But in real world scenario, you often have also a lot of a structured data. What I have seen a lot in the research paper is just like, you know, common, a few type of like common scenarios when you have text and images or like you have audio files and images. But I think it would be good to work on different varieties and combination of data that often you would see in real world, which is like text and tabular data or like tabular data with images. Those types of scenarios are often, I see them rarely in research papers. I think again, because the benchmarks are defined and the standards are defined in an academic environment, but it would be really nice if uh, people start like evaluating their algorithms on scenarios or combinations of modalities of data that kind of like happen more frequently in real setting. I see. You know, you brought up the point about, you know, working with a multimodality setting. I would assume that probably going to come more from an applied research organization, like in industry research, you know, um, in industry, you know, like, for example, your team at Georgian, because industry have more of an incentive because they come up with working with different types of data more frequently rather than, you know, say a professor or like a postdoc student working in a lab, right? And then you also mentioned that you plan to continue this series with like a couple of future blog posts on some of the real world application of transfer learning. So at the end of this long blog post, you mentioned two of them. First one is to tackle sparsity and imbalanced data set. And second one is to handle domainship. So maybe can you just give some quick potential application of these scenarios? We already know a little bit about your background with ML in healthcare, but were there any other real world examples from other domain that you can paint a picture for the listeners? For sure, yeah. I think the most interesting and wide application of transfer learning in industry is a problem that's called Colestar problem. A lot of companies that are growing and scaling are already facing it. It's when you wanted to onboard a new customer and you don't have enough data to train deep models for that for your new customer. And that basically creates a lot of delays for you and increase your onboarding time significantly. Industry, this is a very common problem. I would say almost most of the AI companies are facing it. It's limiting their growth and avoiding them and preventing them from efficiently scaling their company. I would say this is probably the biggest problem that can be solved by using different types of transfer learning methods. In the other blog post that writing right now, I'm planning to cover two different use cases and basically talk about how a Georgian through collaboration with our portfolio companies, we could decrease the onboarding time and hence the time value add for our portfolio companies significantly by using uh, different transfer learning techniques and you know other machine learning techniques, basically. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. 
at Josh and previously you were working on a fintech platform with a team of engineers within the organization on various areas from supervised learning to explainability to representation learning. What are some of the challenges that you encounter working on that project? So there are a lot of challenges. I would say one of the biggest challenges is that the application of ML for finance is relatively I would say new, it's not new in the sense, you know, in that sense, there's been a lot of like statistical papers from 1980s, but, you know, those take a very different approach from what we are doing today. A lot of companies that are doing uh, those sort of research, they're not willing to share it because it's kind of like their secret sauce. Uh, So their literature is very limited and narrow. And so when you start working on those as research problems, you basically have to try to formulate the problem in a nice way and because the research uh, literature is very limited you have to explore a lot of different avenues and try to you know understand which one would work which one wouldn't work basically you're going through many many iterations each time trying one idea trying to formulate the problem in one way see if it works and then if it works it's perfect if it doesn't work you're kind of like going back and correcting yourself a little bit, changing the problem formulation a little bit. Throughout the past few years, I've seen like, you know, there has been workshops on AI in finance or machine learning in finance, but I would say those are still like pretty new. And again, you know, it's still a very new area of research, very interesting and exciting at the same time, but it also comes with different types of challenges. Yeah, so I think that's basically summarized my experience in this area. Thanks for sharing and definitely agree that ML finance can be an exciting area to watch out for. Currently, you're working on a project with Tractable AI, which is an UK-based company that develops AI applications for accident and uh, disaster recovery. Would you mind going over it? For sure. So uh, Tractable is one of our portfolio companies and is basically a leading AI company in the insurance space that uses cutting-edge deep learning methods to automate the visual damage appraisal and broader claim process. As part of their services, they basically have an AI model or an AI pipeline that detects fraudulent car claims. That's basically the use case that we're working on. So as I said in my you know previous in the previous question about the cold star problem, Tractable was basically facing the Colossar problem. And by that, what I mean is like Tractable is trying to expand their, you know, use cases and trying to reach and provide their services in many, many different countries in the world. They're already in three continents and serving 13 countries, but their ultimate goal is to serve all 193 countries in the world. And when you think about that, the first question that comes to your mind is like, if I have already a bunch of AI models that solve this problem in one country, can I use those models to solve the same problem in another country? And the answer uh, simply is no, because of the differences that exist in this country. So if you just like simply try to use the models that you have trained for your you know, previous customers to serve your new customer, they just like would badly fail and the performance would drop significantly so because you know when you think about it the types of car in these countries can be significantly different the strategy can be significantly different a lot of like body shops or a lot of like car expert in for example japan prefer to basically repair different parts of the car whereas if you go to us they prefer to immediately replace the damaged parts for example so the strategies, the types of car, a lot of things are different between these countries. Through our collaboration with the Tractable R&D team, what we have been trying to solve is like, how can we use transfer learning methods to address this shift between you know, the existing countries and the country that you wanted to serve as a new customer? Like if when you're serving a new customer, what are the possible approaches or techniques that you can use to serve this customer in the fastest possible way without the need of collecting thousands of thousands of labeled data points and retraining all your models. Can you just like use your previously trained models with some minimal effort to provide a reasonable 
your basically your services with reasonable accuracy to this customer. So that's basically the goal that we have tried to achieve through our collaboration. And I'm really happy to say that by exploring some of those techniques that I explore, you know, explained previously, we have seen very promising results. We have been able to solve that problem for two new customers in Tractable so far. And we're re-evaluating our techniques to see if we can, you know, solve that problem for other customers, how generalizable our solution is, and so on and so forth. Awesome. And then Stephanie, an example of what we discussed throughout the interview was being utilized in, in a industry scenario. Right. I guess to conclude the main question, given your expertise in the area, what are some of the machine application that you are most excited about? And it can be in various domain industry. Great question. I've been personally thinking about it too recently. I think I'm really passionate about methods that can make AI model data efficient. You know, areas like transfer learning, active learning, representation learning, and related research areas. Through the past couple of years, and you know, through the experiences that I've gained by working at Georgian and with our portfolio companies, I've really realize the value that these methods can bring to our daily lives by reducing the need for labeled data and hence increasing the scalability of AI companies. So, you know, very eager to work on those research areas and help them to basically try to move those forward and make much more progress in those areas. I believe there is a huge untapped potential that can be converted to, you know, real value if we focus on those methods we can basically create a lot of value for these AI companies and consequently our basically lives. Yeah, I see. And the team of using ML to work with limited data, I think that's been getting a lot of momentum in the broader community, you know, for the past couple of years and not just transfer learning, but other approaches ranging from active learning to semi-supervised learning to, you know, meta learning or different ways to tackle this. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up and kind of emphasized the importance of this broader problem statement in general. Yes, definitely. So I guess when I started my master's in 2015, there was like no workshop or nothing, you know, work. no one was, very few people were seriously working on this area. And now when I, you know, look back, we have like workshops in the most popular ML conferences like CVPR, ICLR, ICML. In all of those conferences, there are like workshops and mainstreams for transfer learning and, you know, training models with limited data. It's really awesome and amazing to see these areas getting a lot of attention in the ML community because I believe these are the areas that can actually make AI models to go beyond research papers and actually be deployed in real world setting where they can create value for people and enhance their real life quality of life and real life you know daily experiences. Certainly. Azin, at this point of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions and then you can just give me another quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the machine learning universe whose work you admire. I should say, aside from my advisors, definitely, because I you know, worked with them, it definitely shows that I really like their research. I really like Yasha Benjios and Blake Richards' work. They have done some mind-blowing work on the intersection of neuroscience and machine learning by basically finding the connection between brain and deep learning and kind of getting inspired by all the neuroscience part, trying to simulate that and like deploy those ideas, algorithms in the deep learning side. That's been very fascinating. I definitely, like all other researchers, there are many papers written by Jeff Hinton that I admire. I'm like, wow, this is an amazing idea. This, I just like love this paper. I was recently reading his knowledge distillation paper probably for the 10th time. And that's definitely one of the papers that I've read in the past like five years. And yeah, the third person I would say is probably Louis Philip Morency. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University working on multimodal AI. As I said, that's similar and relevant to heterogeneous transfer learning. He's been working a lot on how to combine different modalities of data and basically leverage all the signals and like the data that we have in real world, how to use all of them and combine them to improve the performance of our models. Because that's basically what we do as humans. We just, you know, 
you use all the signals that you receive, combine them in the most efficient way to make a decision or predict something or to take an action. So he's been working on that and he's done an amazing work throughout the past year, I would say. A lot of like, you know, inspiring and amazing research. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And be sure to include the links to those people in the show notes. So listeners can check it out. Some of this interesting research that you brought upon. Uh, number two, name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better scientific mindset. Machine Learning, A Probabilistic Perspective by Kevin Murphy. I love that book. <laughs> um, I think I've read it a couple of times now. It's a bit outdated now because I think it was published like many years ago, but they're working on the update. They're going to release a new version of it soon. Uh, that's the great news. What I really like about this book is like it covers all the foundation of machine learning with a very strong statistical and probabilistic view. Yeah, I think it's a great book and powerful thing for anyone who wants to get into the field and get really deep into the field, like, you know, to understand all the basics, all the like intuition, all the math behind like these models. I would highly recommend this book. I still have it. I actually have it just beside me now. I once in a while review different chapters of it. It's also a really, really nice book. Yeah, thanks for that recommendation. Lastly, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring research scientists on Twitter. What would you tweet about? Yeah, that's actually a great question. I think I would say, please, let's just get together and ensure that we have the right ethical guidelines in place for research and deployment of AI models. I recently watched this documentary called Coded Bias, which is a basically explore how machine learning algorithms can perpetuate society's existing race, class, gender-based inequalities. It was really eye-opening and I highly recommend it. You know, I recommend watching it to everyone pretty much. I think, you know, as the researchers in the field, we are empowering and this will to move forward and it's really important which direction it's going to. So let's just, you know, ensure that it's going on the right direction. And I think the only way that we can do that is basically by putting the right guidelines and regulations in place. I really like how Yasha Benjo thinks about this. I've, you know, heard many, many speeches from Yasha Benjo and in many of his speeches, he always highlights the importance of ethics in our field. Basically, the way he describes it and that's basically the way I would like to describe it is like each of us as researchers in this field are responsible to understand how the technology and how the algorithm that we're developing can be used. I think we should all ask ourselves this question that is this algorithm biased or is it fair? Is this algorithm, can it harm anyone or can it create any harm for people in future? Or, you know, is it safe? Like, how people are going to use this technology. Is it going to be just used to improve the quality of life for people? Or can it negatively affect some people or some population? So I think, you know, as the field is moving so fast, I think we should just put these guidelines and rules in place sooner rather than later, because soon it may be too late to put it, to put them in place, because the field is moving in an insane speed. I think it's just really important to be careful and ensure that these models, these algorithms do not affect people's life in a negative way because we have seen a lot of examples. It can get much, much worse in the next few years. You know, we have seen like facial expression recognition algorithm failing and being biased. I've personally worked on some of them. If you have seen like algorithms putting, you know, like teachers out of their jobs because of the algorithm bias or you know that, that exists so these are i think really important topics to discuss and it's not only something that needs to be discussed in different groups i think it should start from the researchers and each of us needs to feel like responsible and accountable for it yes yeah, certainly within the past few months or so the term you know responsible yeah as, as a practices become much much more prevalent and Definitely agree with you, you know, in a field that has so many long-term impact and touch so many different dimensions of the society, things in like ethics and governance of AI applications are definitely pivotal for, you know, researchers to focus on their next endeavor. Yeah, Azin, I think that's a great way to end our conversation. I um, really enjoy learning about your experience going to a 
Ogun High School in Iran, some of your experience in your undergrad, participating in programming contests and combining both theoretical and applied programming for your CS degree. Your experience at UCU Toronto, working on a variety of interesting component for your research that utilizes for learning for facial detection and some of your current projects at Georgian, applying ML for social good. So um, yeah, yeah, I think that's a lot of information for listeners to take away and I'll be sure to include all, everything in the show notes. As in, I appreciate you spending uh, time with me today. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, James, for hosting me today. It was really nice, you know, having this chat with you and I also really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks again and have a wonderful day too. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.